0: Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Brought to you by Digital Wildcatters.
1: Welcome back to the Petro Nerds Podcast. We're changing this up a little bit. We didn't actually start. I'm gonna let you talk. We didn't start the first one by saying that we were doing a two-part episode. We decided to do a two-part episode, so this is episode 14. It is still April 29th. And why
0: did we decide to do a two-part episode?
1: Because I talked for a long time and talked an hour. <laughs> well, and at I,
0: least we're self-aware. So it is episode 14. We have two topics today. It is April 29th, 2021. Still, same suit. Uh, we didn't get to the BP earnings call, and we did not get to the MBS interview. So we're going to touch yes. base with on those two topics, which I ought to take us... Only about an hour. Yes. So let's see. All right. And, so he, and we,
1: we'll, we'll intertwine this well. we'll, we'll I mean, the, the hum, Mohammed bin Salman thing actually intertwines well with the, the things we talked about in the last episode on oil prices and everything. So I'm excited to get it. So that. if
0: you're at the gym working out, just keep that workout going yeah, just longer keep it for going. continuity yeah. purposes. All right. So British Petroleum. Let's start. Let me start with Absolutely. some good stuff that they did. They Absolutely. hit their $35 billion debt mm-hmm. target. They're below that. They are buying back stock. And uh, they have a stable dividend that they're paying out. And, you know, that's that's a a decent framework for an E&P company at its core.
1: Yes. I mean, so they're paying down debt. Um, I think that there were a lot of positive themes. Um, Ethan knows that I like to rip on BP. Many people like to rip on BP. The EFT community is all over it. but they are, I listened to this earnings call, and I do think they are trying to, I mean, they have this phrase, performing while transforming. And they are trying to be transformative. They really are trying to be an almost, they're trying to be an electric vehicle charging station. They're trying to be a-
0: I-O-C to I-E-C.
1: Yes. So- so explain that to people. What do you think that means? They want to be an international oh. oil company to an international From an energy company. an integrated oil
0: company to an integrated energy company. I but, think it speaks for itself. Yeah, They're, but
1: I mean, so when they say, I think it's, it's almost more utility. It's like, we want to be, we want to make the, we want to do the hydrogen and we want to do the wind power and we want that to charge the electric vehicle charging stations. So, I mean, which is very hard to think for a lot of folks to wrap their arms around for an oil company. And, you know, we'll see if they can pull this off off successfully. I think that the, you know, the regulatory environments and the incentives and stuff for them to do this are a critical component of that.
0: Well, if you're, I mean, big picture, if your strategy is to maintain market share for end use converting everything to BTUs, it's the right strategy. My, my only caveat and uh, concern would be, can you do that and maintain returns? So they say eight to 10% returns uh, are what's targeted on their non-petroleum businesses. Now that that seems pretty skinny for a return target and maybe they won't be able to achieve it. But on the other hand, it's not paying $100,000 an acre.
1: It's true. Yeah. So, I mean,
0: and lighting money on fire, which is a lot of what we saw here in the US. So, there could be worse strategies.
1: uh, Totally true. And I would say some main themes. So, the main themes I pulled out of this, and this is an hour and like 42 minute call. They talk about they have paid down a lot of debt. They have paid that down faster. And you got to remember that they did this sort of transformative strategy that they only outlined last fall. Um, So when they get criticized, and I'll talk about that shortly, they did get quite a bit of flack toward the end of their call on their wind stuff. And we talked about in the previous earnings call, they got quite a bit of flack for um, wind in terms of the returns because they haven't broken out exactly how much and when. And I think they said in their last earnings call that basically they were going to see start to see returns for wind in 2030. And so this was a little bit different in some of the criticism they were getting actually for offshore releases within the UK. Um, but the point was, is that they're 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 building upon the strategy of transforming the company. Um, and so they say that they are just in the initial parts of that, and they're not willing to change it right now. So they're paying down debt. I believe they said $35 billion in debt, if I have that right. that um, they have now, they're strengthening the offshore wind in the UK the, and their electrification in Europe. And when the electrification in Europe is really about this, um, is really about electric vehicle charging stations in Europe and teaming up with various companies like Volkswagen and others um, and also doing that in the UK. Um, they also have, so they have a mem- mem- memorandum, of understanding or an MOU with Volkswagen, um, for charging stations in the UK. Um, and they have a, they also talk about the refining side. And so refining margins were better, not nearly. They didn't expect them to be pre-COVID levels anytime soon, but they were significantly better than they had been. So they did give a lot of props, obviously, to oil prices being higher and everything, just the outlook looking better. So I think that's helped them significantly. They are still an oil company. Um, I'm not being lip service. They still do produce oil, and that still is giving them a bulk of their revenue. So they're using that um, to transition. They also talk about um, their the the higher cost of the renewable fuel credits in the u.s so refining margins getting better obviously we're going to be a part of that's obviously on the back of just u.s oil demand is improving significantly so um jet fuel demand in the u.s is going up for domestic jet fuel consumption and diesel demands going up and gasoline demands going up we are not yet at pre-covid levels for gasoline demand but we are getting very close to those levels and over where uh product demand is around 20 million barrels a day i think folks have to remember we were at massive highs pre Pre-COVID, we were basically at, at um, significant highs for, for oil demand. So that's why we're uh, we, we're not quite there yet. Um, but they also go talk about the well, another reason they mention is that net capacity additions, I think it was a, a million barrels a day on, on the refinery side for 2020. So they basically see that refinery margins are not going to be great. Anytime soon, because you actually add capacity, you still add to global, you add to capacity on the refining site in 2020. And then they mentioned there. Yeah, I
0: mean, big picture. We're big, still down on jet yep. fuel, and even though we've seen a lot of recovery. Yep. We're still down on jet fuel everywhere. And that hurts. cracks.
1: Yes. Um. So but resili- they talk about their quote, unquote, resilient and focused hydrocarbons. So we've mentioned that they talked about the resilient hydrocarbons before they really on this an hour and forty five, forty two minute call. It's. They barely talk about oil. Um, and so, though, in, with regards to those resilient and focused hydrocarbons, um, in terms, and I say they barely talk about oil in terms of the actual projects and getting into the weeds on anything. And they, they actually didn't get into the weeds on much. Um, but they mentioned two of them, which were the Raven project in Egypt, which is a 900,000 barrel of oil equivalent per day. Um, that's the expectations for that. And then their one in India, uh, which is 140, 40,000 barrel per day, um, barrel of oil equivalent expectation. So, that's on the other side, resilient and focused hydrocarbons, they're selling, they plan to sell, would you say 10 billion? 10 um, billion in asset yeah, sales. 10 million asset sales. So we're still gonna continue that. Uh, I, they did mention that they're, you know, the money that they're getting from Hill Corp, it's over time, the way it's structured, their Alaskan thing. I thought they were gonna get a question on that, that article or something on the flag for the emissions thing, but they did not, nothing came up on that side from um, them selling off assets and their emissions standpoint. They didn't really actually talk about emissions that much at all. Um, they did talk about this gigawatt thing. So this being an IEC or an international energy company, I think they're, it's like a utility company. I mean, they're, they have these goals to hit gigawatt targets um, within their company. And so they're adding that. And this is where it kind of gets into the the messiness of how, I think, how they go about this and the costs and then the returns. Because whilst you can argue, obviously, you know, shale companies burnt through a lot of money and, and you know, we. It screwed people over and, and asset prices went through the roof and never delivered, et cetera. Um, solar has did that in the past too. If I recall under the Obama administration, I believe there was a lot of uh, scandal and corruption. solar. that's kind of why it it got a little messy. So it didn't give a lot of returns either. I think there is at least some, you can hear it within this call. I mean, they mentioned wind 28 times, but the questions that they had on wind in their previous earnings call were directly to the returns of when will we see returns? So the one thing, the only uh, credit I would say on the oil side is at least, yes, they burned through all this money, but they could model this stuff out a little easier in terms of they knew you paid for X, you're going to produce Y, and here it is. The, the BP has not yet given them That color on how much they paid for the wind and what it's going to produce and exactly what the returns are and when the returns are. And I think that's um, if I was an uh, investor, I'd be asking the same questions, too. Not that I'm anti wind. I'm just saying that
0: in contrast to Chevron, which is very clear about its return thresholds and what they're willing to do.
1: Yes, and I'm even I'm poly, I'm even sure that Chevron hasn't broken down. If you say, okay, what? Well, you're investing in that dairy farm for CO two. Are you actually making money on that? Maybe yeah. not. That's I mean, the
0: difference is they're not transforming the entire company to an integrated energy company. Right. They're still an oil company.
1: So, and I think that's fair where some of these questions come from, and and it's mm-hmm. different. They so remember in their last, if you listen to previous podcasts and their last earnings call, they did talk about the. um that it would, it would take a while to obviously get returns. It wasn't quite like solar where they would see it as, as soon. And they said in 2030, they would start seeing these returns when they were getting pressed on, um, on the wind side. This one was with regards to the wind questions toward the end were actually with regards to their, the lease sale. So I, I had not followed it closely, but clearly there is some questioning and controversy over how much they paid, um, for this acreage. And they just basically kind of, they said they didn't want to get into it and back and forth, but they thought it was a really good deal. Um, so they're asked basically, just on the back of UK wind, blah, blah, blah. They say, but there's a lot of renewable companies out there saying, yes, you overpaid. Um, and actually, I think this has been... So Bernard Looney responds, this. oh, this is Oswald Clinton says this. Basically, a lot of folks saying you overpaid. Um, and he's saying, I'm really asking, why can't you put some of these comments to rest and say what you think the internal rate of return is on such a project? It's not the trade. It's not the trading business. Why do you have to be so secretive? The reason he said not the trading business was because they have a lot of questions on the trading business. And, because they
0: don't disclose their yeah. trading economics, so they were, which is understandable.
1: It, absolutely understandable. So that's why he he comments on this. So. They Bernard Looney gets into this and he talks about the 10% decrease, blah, blah, you know, talking about fuels and everything. And then he says, look, on the offshore wind, um, quote, it's easy to get dragged into he said, she said. And I'm probably not going to do that um, other than to say, look, we were successful. We were the winning bidder. We weren't alone. We have a partner who's very experienced in this space, E-N-B-W. Don't know who that is. Uh, so we didn't um, do it on our own. Um I'm still quoting here. We should also point out that we were prepared to bid on leases in the North Sea, same team, same partnership, same methodology, obviously different environment. And we would not have won those leases on the other side of the British Isles in the North Sea. So that would give you a sense that we were grounded in reality, so to speak as, and as, and as I said, lots of people coming in and wanting to buy. We can publish a return to a decimal point, but it's not going to be the, be right because I think it's simply going to, I hope, um, and I believe actually get better and get better over time. And it sort of gives you a level of accuracy that it isn't consistent with a range of opportunities that we have to create additional returns in that business. So he basically goes on to explain- when that's tortured. Quote, what?
0: That's tortured. That him? response. No, not you, oh, him. Oh, I was gonna say. Yeah.
1: yeah he he. When I listened to it, I was like, "Oh!" Um, when I listened to it, I listened to it twice, and I was like, "You know, is he really kind of? He's ducking it because he he goes on to keep kind of." no offense he's bullshitting it and he's he's going around it and he's not saying what he's saying so he basically says we were right into reality because hey we didn't overpay for this one he doesn't say we didn't overpay for this and his excuse for not giving the the decimal he's because they're asking him what's what did you pay for it and what's the returns and his excuse is that it's going to be worth more money um, he's sure that it's going to be worth more, more money than what they paid. And that given they just did this whole revamping strategy in last fall, um, that they're just not ready to give these numbers.
0: So implied in his response is that it's an NAV type play and not a cash flow type play. Well,
1: yeah. And it's, I mean, so, right. Is that you're so yeah, this is what kind of where it's we can like get back to somebody's going like, to
0: pay for more for it later or that the technology will be better later and we'll get more cash out of it or something.
1: And you can, so there are more questions in this and this is where Mm. I'm kind of fascinated by this because more, there's, there's more questions where people are talking about the acreage or like, would you spend some off? Would you sell some, would you sell some off? And it's like, Oh, well we have opportunities to do that. Then we're talking like, this is like acreage, like shale, you know? Um, and, the concerns I have with with the wind side is that this is like. And,
0: and let's be clear, there are a lot of people who were in early on shale that flipped acreage and made a boatload of money.
1: Absolutely, and there and
0: that's fine. Ap- There's nothing wrong with that.
1: Right. Um. There are a lot of people that were in early on offshore wind and have flipped acreage and made a lot of money too. Mm-hmm. Um. And BP. And Equinor came in and bought some of this offshore acreage here in the U.S. Um, look, every time you wait, you know, the multiples get higher. And obviously with Biden, when the day Biden's elected and everything, everything starts going bananas again, because everyone knew he was going to have these subsidies and then these. These um executive orders, which explicitly talk about offshore wind and promoting offshore wind, I mean, he has single handedly, at least in the U.S., helped bid up acreage prices. So that is directly underpinned. I mean, different than shale. Shale was hype and shale was people going in. It was not underpinned by someone saying, Unleash the tax necessarily didn't quite have the same government, um, you know, this is the government saying we want to increase offshore wind. So it's a little to me, it's a little bit different And what they're both speculative and everything, but they are underpinned by government um, incentives and subsidies and obviously in offshore renewable energy credits and everything. Well,
0: well, you're always putting me in the position of having to be the devil's advocate because we agree on stuff. But I will point out that whatever you think about ethanol, it's been a good business for a lot of people for a long time. Because it is a fully government mandated business and it's not going anywhere because Iowa, the presidential um, candidates must go through Iowa. And so that their uh, corn policy dictates U.S. policy overall. So to that end, there are worse things to bet on than long term subsidy of an industry.
1: Yeah, I mean. I don't think Ethan really should bring up ethanol to me. I had, so the energy policy research foundation in my previous career, that was one thing they, they did a lot of work on ethanol. And my old boss, Luke Polarisi um, is known for this. Like he testified on the Hill a lot. And the frustrating thing about ethanol was like under George Bush, he basically mandated. So it was a government mandate that the Congress mm-hmm. passed to put a, it wasn't a volumetric, oh, sorry, it was a volumetric mandate because see, mm-hmm. they had the belief um, that gasoline demand was just gonna go exponentially rise. So of course, g- government knew best um, that, you know, if these people are not PhDs, they're not PhD economists, they haven't figured this out, but they mandated a number of the volumes that go into the gasoline pool. Well. Mm-hmm we hit the blend wall at like the, at, at the time when the blend wall was 10% because you could only put so much ethanol into the gasoline pool. Um, then we said, okay, 15%. And, but obviously that'd be a, your, you your, Auto industry had to comply with that for um, look at your sticker when you fuel up your vehicle. It says guaranteed for E15. Older vehicles don't have it. And then I believe um, I think it was it was Trump who basically expanded that, too. I mean, he leaned in. Everybody leans into to um, the farmers. You know, they have to. I mean, they have, they're a big lobbying group. And so you lean this farm. But the point is, is that the. Congress thought the gasoline demand would exponentially grow and they always had to back every every year they they had to have um, they had to back out of this thing because they never had the volumetric requirements could never be hit um, and we kept getting pushed up against this blend wall so the point is when when government is mandating and putting numbers on energy use it doesn't always work like that in reality so when we're thinking about that of like we have to hit x number of gigawatts of wind and x number of gigawatts of solar I mean it, I'm just. I'm just saying. It doesn't always work like that in reality, and you. It, it can cause sticky. Um, well, if you.
0: If you. I mean, there's a question of what policy should be, and what is actually going to happen, and if the government mandates certain market outcomes, regardless of the secondary and tertiary impacts. You know, you can yeah. still invest in it.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. You can still invest in it. Whether it I'm should not, exist not, on its own or I don't disagree. I don't just, discre- I, dis- I say that. I don't mm-hmm. disagree. It. Um, mm-hmm. I Yes, I know. Ethan hates that statement. I don't disagree. Apparently, Chuck Gates and I used it quite a bit in our podcast together. Um, but looping, bringing this back to BP before we close on this, um, on this BP topic. Um, So they say, I think it's interesting that somebody says, uh, somebody says in the earnings call, um, the way i relate to this this thing guys is 100 years ago people discovered oil fields built refineries to process it built service stations to sell it to consumers all you're seeing um, with offshore wind is the rebuilding of that hundred year business so the upstream isn't oil field anymore it's a wind farm um i i don't know um that seems a bit of a it seems a bit of a stretch to me because i still don't that would mean you've taken us all the way to the point where everyone's driving an electric vehicle and their four wheels out of the equation. So I, I don't think wind farms are the next I, wind farms. You, you certainly can equate the way we did it from the acreage standpoint in doing it. And, and downspacing, you can, you can, we're downspacing apparently on wind farms too. Apparently people have done the math and it makes more sense to put more windmills next to each other. So shocking.
0: Well, you know, look, the, the interesting aspect of this is that the history of energy transitions, and we've had lots of transitions before, you know i never miss a chance to say that the oil industry saved the whales because that's exactly what happened and the history of energy is going from a less dense to a more dense from a less scalable to a more scalable fuel and that naturally leads us to nuclear power not backwards on the density scale towards diffuse sources so i'm it's going to be a very interesting next couple decades to see how these ideologies conflict with physics and reality
1: well and the physics side i think is important because i am not i have not studied it intimately from the uk perspective but i assume they're going to continue to have nuclear at uh, nuclear capacity and stuff to handle this oncoming onshore wind um because onshore or i'm sorry offshore wind because there's a lot of power in offshore wind it's massive and you have to have you have to have a um onshore either nuclear or natural gas facility or something that can handle that intermittency, right. And handle the intensity. You can't just cable this stuff in. It's not always going to blow. I mean, you have to like manage the inputs and outputs for all this stuff. So I believe from my understanding and talking to offshore wind guys in the, in the U S is that large combined cycle, natural gas facilities are well suited for this, or obviously the nuclear facility that's going out. So I personally, I think it's important for offshore wind and onshore wind folks to realize that if you're in the Northeast and you're needing gas, and you will need gas, and most people in the wind business are not anti oil, they're not anti natural gas, they're not. Well,
0: some of them are. So, some of them maybe, but it's it, not. I think it's been very
1: I think it's been very politic. It's more politicized. I think more people in political camps as opposed to people in business. Um, anyways, I, I think I'm not. I'm not anti you know wind or solar, but I think that the, if you're in the wind or solar business and you you have to realize that. 10 years from now, and even five years from now, and two years from now, the ability for your product to actually work in the, this grid scheme, it has to have a real reliable backup. And I, I do think that this administration, especially for the Northeast, the Marcellus, the, you know, only having two BCF a day of pipeline capacity of gas um, out of the Marcellus, it's really important to start thinking about the supply risks for potential supply risks for natural gas um, to the Northeast for power generation. And that maybe your offshore wind project you know, it's it's a reality that it's going to need a natural gas or some some big power plant. And it's probably going to need natural gas. And there are some risks to actually getting that natural gas now
0: or could be. Or you just pay four times more for your power and you have utility scale batteries that last for 72 hours. I mean, that's that's the outcome is that either you've got to pay through the nose to tack on if, expensive but we, batteries but we don't, or. Uh,
1: we don't have right. massive large scale utility scale batteries in place right now, do we?
0: We have them in our minds.
1: Yeah, so they're in our minds. They have not yet, I mean...
0: <laughs> no, they, I'm just saying, like, that's you know, and, the outcome is you, you have know, to spend a lot of money yeah. on imported lithium batteries, right? So, and I, I mean, think there's no, there's no say, free lunch. There's no uh, free right, lunch. There's
1: no free lunch, and I think... I'm not saying the battery can't get there. I just think that a lot of people on the tech side, and, you know, I've talked with, with Colin and Jake about this too, and folks in Houston, is a lot of people on the battery tech side, and I, I've been at auto conferences, and this was a few years ago, but they... Would contend that the battery technology was not yet there for large scale utility use. So I'm not saying it can't get there. I'm just saying that if you're planning on stuff tomorrow, um, you, it it needs to be there. So it's probably going to be natural gas. And I do think there are actually headwinds if you're if you're changing if you're not willing to give an olive branch to the oil and gas community and say we may need you in this process of going green. Um, I think things could get messy, especially if you're getting rid of pipelines and whatnot. Um, so with that, we can probably wrap it up on on you know
0: ripping oh, on, move, on. move from uh, Br- i mean there's british. more
1: they, they kept going on i mean they just they did keep going could talk on the way
0: for an hour but we don't want to do that so let's move from british petroleum to Mohammed bin salman
1: yes my favorite topic i'm
0: super excited about this okay um, mbs the leader of saudi arabia yes monarch
1: yes so Mohammed bin salman crown prince Um, He does this every now and then. So this is a full on interview. And um, in the
0: Arab news is the translation into English. And there's video as well.
1: Yes. Multiple videos. They were actually when I watched it, the first one, I didn't realize that they had only released like the first one. And I read it and then they kept releasing more of these. I don't know if it it didn't pop up or something, but there's multiple videos. And I, I still don't think I finished the whole thing. But if you watch it. You know, he's a really there's a reason why Mohammed bin Salman, Putin, uh, I don't know, so much Xi Jinping, um very very similar styles, but they they're really good at taking people in. And Mohammed bin Salman is a smiley guy, um very intelligent, uh well-spoken, and so he does this interview and they so It was two nights ago and Bloomberg had sent a little blip out and it it was like a midnight and saying, hey, you know, they're going to sell off a stake in the pipeline. And so it came from this interview is that they're going to they're willing to sell off more of a stake to a company. and, And in an interview, they asked, you know, the interviewer asked, who are we selling this pipeline to? And he said, or who are we selling additional parts of Ramco too and and he's like can't disclose that blah 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 um and it's probably a chinese company uh, or we're assuming it's a chinese company mm-hmm. but the point is this is a really long this is a really long interview they talk about everything um they talk about everything i remember the sun from housing in Riyadh, um housing overall in the country um really the how far he's come in the 2030 vision because he's five years into the 2030 vision and i have to say if you've we reference referenced these books, but if you've read the book Mohammed bin Zalt MBS or Blood and Oil, you have a very different, and you've done a decent amount of research on this guy, you have a very different perspective of this, you would have a very different perspective of this interview um, than I think
0: most people just listening well, My thought was, did he order an assassination before or after giving the interview?
1: I mean, well, the guy it was like, it, it, you heard when he opened the opened the interview, he like, oh, thank you so much. For, oh, no, you're one of the best journalists. You're one of the best interviewers. I'm like, Okay, just as long as you don't cross him or you can't, you can't, you can't actually cross sure. him or go against him as a journalist or you'll get in trouble. So, of course, it can't be a really critical interview. And even he, you could even tell the guy was just like, okay, well, what about this question, you know? and i'm sure they uh, there's probably some obviously editing and everything that went into that it was a lengthy interview Mohammed bin is known for talking at length like he can go on for literally he's known for holding meetings in like two in the morning and he can go on for hours talking um so he could actually we probably could go toe to toe in terms of, of bantering on about things um but some of the big takeaways some things that really stuck out was his talking about oil um and you know, he is actually on the record. And I want to say this before we get into this. He's on the record in the book, Mohammed bin Salman or the MBS. I think there was a quote in there that he had said early in his career that he had said Saudi Arabia wouldn't technically need oil by 2020. Um, so he's already on the record for that. And I also want to make it clear that Mohammed bin Salman. Well, is I
0: said a lot of dumb stuff I when I was 19. I know, too.
1: but you're not running the kingdom. Um, this so, is true. So yeah, so he's running Saudi Arabia and effectively he is. So you have the King's picture on the wall when doing this interview, but Mohammed Mohammed bin Salman is effectively in control. So if you listen to this interview, you should you should take into account that the massive and intense reforms that took place in the past five years under Mohammed bin Salman. So he he, some of
0: which are very admirable women can drive.
1: Yes. Um. You know, they're admirable. I mean, he has jailed the women who drove to make that happen, to protest that. But, you know, he allowed them.
0: There may be inconsistencies.
1: There are inconsistencies (laughs) because he wants to show very clearly that he is the one in power. And then if you cross him, you'll get in trouble. So that's basically Mm -hmm. his point is that he gets to decide what happens. You don't. So, you know, you basically I mean, it's very clear that's how he structured it. But the point of these reforms and how he explains the 2030 vision is that one, it's they gloss over a lot of stuff. So he throws out numbers willy-nilly a little bit um, and then talks about, like, well, you know, where unemployment's at, where they want to get to it, how he wants to increase the jobs, and the interviewer can't ask super hard questions of like, well, how are you going to make those better jobs? I mean, you can't ask that hard question because that would be hard. Because you know, I don't know.
0: So, so the one that really got me, he didn't follow up and say, so wait, wait, you're saying that I know, I know, uh, we're getting, the, U.S. production's going to zero okay, in ten years? This <laughs> is the
1: this is the, this is the best one, and we're going to bring this in context of, of the previous the podcast we just recorded on oil demand and oil prices. But so he's asking him. Um, Uh, he's obviously going to ask him about oil prices and I want to find this perfectly. Cause he's okay. So he says the, the question by the interviewer is, um, this is the idea, Your Highness, that I I would like you to simplify it to me. How can you we proceed to follow these steps? The public investment fund will enable us to do with oil. So, in in context of this, they're talking about the public investment fund. They're talking about all the money that they've invested in in the public investment fund and how this is new, right? That 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 previous in the previous five years they hadn't started this public investment fund. So he's been taking hundreds of billions of reals and investing in the public investment fund. They're buying sports teams and everything. And the point is that they're diversifying their economy through this. They're using oil money to do it, but they're diversifying through this. And they're, they're, to for all intents and purposes, it is a diversification strategy. But his answer, this is the Crown Prince's answer, is this is a wrong perception of, um, I think I'm getting this right, this is a wrong wrongful perception that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia would like to dispose of oil. Not at all. We want to exploit everything, whether the oil sector or other sectors. If we're talking, for example, about the oil sector, if you look at them. At most of their analysis, their expectation collectively is that demand for oil will increase up to 2030. The majority expect that demand will grow and others expect that by 2030, the demand for oil will start decreasing gradually till 2070. I mean, he's not exactly right in most of the forecasts because he probably
0: hasn't paid attention to. In it. fairness, no one really knows. Yes,
1: yeah, No one really knows. But anyways, uh, he's he's got a kind of an optimistic peak and then it plateaus. Um, Continue, quote, if you look at that from the other way, we're now talking about demand for oil. If we're talking about um, other other if we're talking about the others in terms of the supply, you find that the supply is more is is lost more quickly or declines more quickly than reduced demand for oil. So this is where it gets into um basically he's saying that's demand, but really it's about supply. So if demand is going to do that, then it's only about the supply. And he doesn't get followed up questions on this. So listen to this carefully. The U.S., the U.S., for example, will not be an oil-producing country in 10 years. Today, it produces like 10 million barrels, barrels. After 10 years, it will barely produce 2 million barrels. In China, they're producing 4 million barrels. In 2030, it will reach zero barrels or very insignificant. Russia. I can't believe he threw in Russia. I thought he was going to stop here. I thought there's not a first chance in hell he's going to say Russia. But no, he does. I, and I'm I'm like Googling, did Novak say something after this? Like, how could this not serve shit in Russia? Russia, quote, is producing 11 million 11 million barrels after 19 or 20 years. It will only produce 1 million barrels or less barrels. Mm. So the supply is declining much quicker than the decline of demand for oil and the demand will increase as expected. But the supply will reduce gradually, will be reduced gradually after five years. After five years. So he's just accelerated from 10. Um, quote, again, in Saudi, in Saudi later, on the future it will be it will increase its production to cover the need for oil so this is quite a promising part of course it's promising um
0: that's amazing if all your competitors stop uh, producing,
1: but we, we should not rely on it the other thing that's related to the oil sector you know we go to the downstream profitability increases so i'll get back to this downstream piece but just this is pretty remarkable is that one this wasn't all over everywhere this should have been kind of all over everywhere that he's saying this but He's known for saying some stuff that's a little bit wonky, but the guys on Twitter were funny because this, it was like, this would be, I think you tweeted, and it was like, what, we're declining a million barrels per day per year? Like,
0: it's. I mean, I guess if we found fusion, that could happen.
1: Well,. It doesn't. There's no. There's no context to it. So when he says ten <laughs> yeah, years, and then he I, I says, then he
0: says five. I mean, years. I, I almost wonder if the translation is wrong or something. Um, I mean, maybe he's talking about decline rates, but anyway, when I saw that, I was like, this is bonkers.
1: I don't think the trend, Because I, I well, I actually watched it and listened, looked at the translation, and then I read it again. I don't think that it could be too off because yeah. he, he's talking. He started it with talking about supply and demand, and then saying they're going to be able to meet the supply. So. It's it's something to I think people need to people need to understand in context that Saudi Arabia is not going to stop
0: producing crude oil. Well, I mean, Russia will never stop producing crude oil because it's I don't know if I mean if they will say this, but global warming, you know, if it is indeed full on caused by CO2 and they full on believe that, then that is a net positive for Russia.
1: I mean, in terms of the Arctic melting?
0: Yeah. I mean, they want Arctic passage and they want, I mean, it's cold.
1: They've already started. So I don't know if many people, but Russia's already started in the, with some of the Arctic melting. They already have now a, they can take LNG and they're going, they're investing us yeah. and they're going to continue. Not, right. I don't
0: think it's so they'll to, produce every barrel. they can
1: Yeah. So they're, u, they're using the Arctic melting to be able to sell, send LNG directly from, from the Arctic down into Asia, which makes perfect sense for them. Um, and it gives them as the Arctic melts, it gives them more, uh, full year transportation. It changes the, the lens yeah. communication yeah. and gives. So,
0: but not just that, I mean, just the, the whole continent. I mean, they, they have a lot of very cold territory. So,
1: well, yeah, yeah. I mean, but it, this I mean, this this whole thing of um, him saying this, you know, for for Mohammed bin Salman to say this, I think it's a little tricky because he does control. like he full on was the reason why we had the web price war. So Russia obviously contributed. Mm-hmm. And they got to this bat, But it was Mohammed bin Salman who had a you know, he is a very proud young man um, and he was. He was, you know, pushed against the wall. And so he fought back and decided and neither. Nobody had an an idea of how bad the collapse in in demand was going to be. And so they got into this production war and obviously tank prices. And then he's clawing his way out of it. So what's interesting is they certainly didn't talk about that of like, you know, he kept saying we're recovering from COVID and everything. And I thought, well, you're the reason that you had 18 WTI in April and 27, or sorry, 18 airblight in April and 27 air blight in, in May. Like he's the single reason for the entire globe, you know, this guy who, you know, was pissed that Novak wouldn't pick up his phone.
0: Well, let's 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 game this out a little bit. So if you think about what it did to the U.S. U.S. production and the hiccup. So it definitely put the knife in a lot of U.S. activity, which hasn't fully rebounded yet. And it's probably also um, shifted the ability or, you know, structurally deterred the ability, certainly of investments on the debt side. But there's a lot of public money that's It's out of the oil and gas basement. You see that more from just uh, talking to hedge funds that don't have pods that were in in traditional energy or have shifted to renewables or some of the mix has changed, but a lot of long only funds are out. So you know, I mean, maybe for the long term it was a good market share play.
1: Yeah, but that wasn't how so that's, I mean,
0: maybe that's not the reason he did it, I know, but I'm just it certainly saying that's wasn't like, a zero for
1: it. That's him. like assuming some of you worked in 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 New York, some hot headed trader on Wall Street makes a short term bet and then you're like, Oh, they were really thinking about the long term. Bullshit.
0: He well, was sure, but I'm saying you know, the like, consequences still Yeah, real. but
1: I mean that's not what was happening. So he didn't and this is where this is where I think a lot of folks and I I, I at this the crawfish boil. And, and last weekend at Chuck Gates' house and with, with the wildcatter guys, I mean, I think it got on Twitter. I made a lot of bets on because people are very bullish on oil prices. And you can be bullish, but I, I do think the macro is this deep, deep understanding of how the Saudis think and how Russia thinks and everything is kind of missing. Um, and that we tend to think of it from our perspective and U.S. declining. I still think that so all that work, tinking oil prices, to that low of levels and that much pain. And yes, we've recovered that, but they still have how many barrel? how many barrels a day did they personally cut? How much do they have? How much is all of OPEC Plus having sitting on silence? And oh, by the way, how much did the U.S. cut? We are 11, we were at 13 million barrels a day. And if you go, according to David Ramson and Chuck Gates, we should have never been there in the first place. It was pie in the sky. It was ridiculous. So we're actually kind of at a level we should be. We're at 11 million barrels per day. We didn't lose it, it's not that much compared to what they took off. I mean, we've took off what less than the Saudis, and we're climbing back. So, really, did they? What did they actually gain from a from a use perspective? Gain in terms of we're not going to grow like crazy. Um, but they personally didn't do this. I'm not, i not. I just don't think that's. The strategy behind this was that this was a Russian-Saudi fight. Um, Certainly, U.S. shale has brought them together. I do think they think about U.S. shale differently now. They think about it pretty poorly because they did not expect production to come back online. So OPEC has said that over and over that they're shocked that that production came back as quickly. And that is basic. That is as we are turning production off, we're shutting it in, and we're bringing it back online. This is stuff, this is conventional. They should understand this, that that would happen. So I don't know if they thought that it was going to go like you would turn, shut it off and you wouldn't bring it back. Like that makes no sense to me. So if prices had stayed at 35 for certain, you would have a lot of those wells would have stayed shut in. But prices gradually move back up. And this is where I think people, they and other people might be making the mistake, is thinking that not not just U.S. oil, but it's like we tend to think about the Saudis and Russia and U.S. and that's it. but. You don't think other oil around the entire world wants to grow? People want to eke out a few more barrels at 64, 64 WTI, 67 Brent. Oh, and if we get to the higher levels of 70 and 80, of course it is. It's going to, people are going to increase production. Well, if and, you're
0: saying that price incentivizes this new supply, I agree with you.
1: Yes, yeah, so exactly. So I just, I don't know if, um, that's where his statement is really wonky on like, I mean, maybe he's taking it um, partly. I think they probably are taking the d- two million barrel day decline in the U.S., the um, the um U.S. administration, are, you know, obviously not being favorable to oil and gas. That's very clear. I think that they've certainly interpreted that the Biden administration doesn't want to increase oil and gas production, certainly isn't going to on federal land. So I think they're probably taking that as a, you know, And and you have folks in D.C. who are basically saying, hey, that we're going to lose a million barrels a day from from federal land. So they could be taking it that way. But. To say that we would just continue to decline like that would assume that I mean I mean I think a lot of does work,
0: he believe that or yeah, is it I don't I don't know it seems
1: very it, it, well the fact that they didn't really get into it I just think I, it
0: almost seems a little Trumpian
1: it seems just, just um, sort of thrown out there
0: like, throwing it out there
1: exactly there wasn't a whole lot not there a lot in,
0: of thought behind it
1: not a lot of thought behind it exactly and he, I, I think I I've always known that they've used a lot of consultants but I do think those books about him really illuminate to the fact that how much they leaned on, you know, it was a Boston consulting group and McKinsey and how much they used them. And so even for the 2030 vision, you know, he would throw out wonky ideas. And when I say wonky, this is where I say, really, when you listen to his interviews, you have to realize that this man in his, the city of Neom that he wanted to do, and still wants to do is still working on it. You see, Clips of that on Bloomberg, but I think they're a little bit heady in this. But anyways, they Neom is they're progressing with the city, um, but he wants a wanted a fake moon. He wanted like. Uh, literally a fake moon. He wanted like fake dinosaurs. He wanted people to live hundreds and hundreds of years um, with different medical technologies. I mean, very, very sort of pie in the sky thinking. And then he would go have these um, consultants go work this stuff out for him and then come back with these PowerPoint presentations. Um, so I would just think this is probably something that he, obviously he didn't question about an interview. It didn't get super teased out. There were a lot of other questions that did come up in terms of, I mean, that just kind of point the. Fl- this is where i say we people don't think seriously enough about the fact that he is running the oil strategy and he may not know what he's doing because or that it's there's kind of some fiction because
0: in contrast to putin who is i mean he's a dictator but he's sharp
1: uh, i think he so. gets it i think uh putin told i think putin plays the people think he's <laughs> he's, he's you know, this autistic like guy that doesn't he's sharp as hell. I don't care if he's he's leaning into whatever he plays that card as much like you think I'm stupid. And then he goes and whacks you in the face. I mean, like he's he's game on all the time. Um, and he does have a similar style. And though that all three of them have a very similar leadership style. That's why I kind of question like how people could totally get the China thing wrong is because we've had templates of this before. You know, it's not like we didn't have a Putin template to tell you, like if you had a similar leadership style in China and you knew where China was going. So it's, that's a little BS to be like, well, we just didn't know. Um, you did like we, we kind of actually knew what it would look like. But for Mohammed bin Salman, he is young. Like this is the, the scary thing about him is that he could be an office. I mean, he's going to be ruling forever and
0: he changed another 50 years.
1: Yeah. And he changed the whole organization structure. He's changed everything. He's gotten rid of his opposition. He's worked very creatively and craftily to change the whole organizational structure. And through this interview, you'll hear it where he's like, well, we used to do it this way, but we changed the structure of yes, he did change the structure of everything to where he's in control of it now. But he talks about things like, oh, you know, we're going to increase the population of Riyadh and we're going to increase the jobs in Riyadh. If you've been to Riyadh and he talks about how it's one of the best cities in the world, how it has less traffic, then I mean, some things are just ridiculous. Like he compares it to London and, and New York and stuff and says that if it was London, New York, that have way more traffic, but they have great traffic controls. Like if you've been there, um, it's just not you're not blown away. And I haven't been there since 2017, but you're just not blown away. Like the fan, it's not a super fancy city. It's fancy at the Ritz Carlton. It's fancy at a couple of places, but you have to drive a long distance and what you see on the road, you see lots of construction. And then you also like, they don't have, a, they may now, but they didn't then you trucks go every night to fill up water on your house. So you literally have water tanks on the top of your house that fill it up with water. Talk about inefficiency. Like there's no major water system you know he also talks the thing that they added with trees um they were talking about the environment so he was saying how much he cared about the environment this is it just gets kind of just wonky you know Of just like is this what's rooted in reality and what is just somebody talking and so he talks about all the you know that they've been dealing I don't know if he uses the word climate change but they've been dealing with with massive sandstorms and over the past 20 years the sandstorms have increased and so they've needed to plant more stuff to prevent this and so he says in the past five years they have reduced the sandstorms significantly because he's planted a lot of things and um because he's planted all this this is making a big difference and I just thought I'm wondering does this what does this interviewer think is this real like I just don't even know what what's what's real um so it's just i thought it was a very very interesting you know
0: well i think i think we should uh come that article to everyone's attention and uh it's worth reading if it, you're in the it totally is this. it's
1: worth it's uh, if you can sit through it and i think it's worth watching his face and and, and, and the whole dynamics of it and yeah. he is a real you have to this you have to follow these well, let, let, let's people. just
0: bring this home yes. which is that To believe that we're gonna have consistent $80 oil, you have to also believe that that won't stimulate a bunch of extra production, or that it can't come on quickly enough to meet demand, and that the OPEC spare capacity won't fly out of the taps to meet that demand. I'm not willing to make that bet. I well, think at eighty dollars you get a lot of new supply.
1: I also think you have to believe that there's some consistency. You have to understand the deep policy making within OPEC Plus, which is Saudi Arabia, which is Mohammed bin Salman. And all you have to do is watch that interview and tell me that you're a hundred percent certain you know what's gonna happen in the next year. You don't, and that's the point. Um and he he kinda wants that. Like he kinda owns that. Like he has this whole kind of don't screw with me and I'll change course. And that's what he did in March of last year, you know, was like, I'll do this to oil prices. And obviously. I think he he's learned lessons from from this stuff, but it's this kind of wild card in, in oil prices. And it, it, it's also concerning, especially the way he explained the way we just described of how he explains supply and demand. Does he truly get it? Does he think that, you know, um, peak oil demand is not an issue. Does he think that high oil prices are not an issue? Um, do, does he understand that, um, you know, Russia obviously seems to think that high oil prices are kind of an issue. They can work with a lower price threshold. They want to keep the oil thing going for a long time. It. I don't know if they're quite on the same page with that. I know they're on the same page that they would love to not have to worry about shale as a big threat. and And they're probably feeling pretty comfortable with that in terms of increased growth but i don't know if if they're on the aligned on the same page of how they really truly view the long run oil market and that means there's a lot of question marks there and
0: so basically You can't have high high conviction on any sort of scenario that involves a guy who may or may not understand the market, but at very minimum has proven himself to be incredibly mercurial.
1: Yeah. And I think he's uh, he's obviously a smart guy. I'm not saying he he may personally understand, but I don't think you can. uh, So
0: was the Right.
1: I don't think you can know for certain what he's going to do. I mean, he he probably was single handedly behind the killing of Khashoggi. And clearly that was a mistake. You know, he had, you know, Silicon Valley guys in the palm of his hand. He was pushing for investment. In Saudi Arabia, and he lit, he killed all of it by going after a journalist who kind of pissed him off a little because he criticized him. That wasn't smart policymaking. So you have to just be careful that Paul, you know, this person is controlling all this this crude oil production, and you have to realize this is in context of all these other nations who need to be producing oil, to recovering their balances and budgets for potentially realize this is the last hurrah. This is the last like big oil price spike they're going to have, and then it, and then mm-hmm. it might be over. And I think we can take this full circle and come back to the fact that, all these countries, um, and I'll go on the record, I think you and I will both go on the record, all these countries are going to produce this till the day is long. I don't care if prices are 80, I don't care if they're 40, I don't care if they're right. 30. All these countries are going to continue to produce it. Because it makes sense for them. If Saudi Arabia prices go to 30, mm-hmm. they will they will use it internally.
0: And the, the issue that no one seems to get is the efficiency paradox where, let's say you suppress all the demand in OECD countries and you make all well, $40 a barrel, well that just makes it an even more attractive fuel right. for developing economies because it's cheap and and so you get the same consumption so to act like this resource won't be monetized and it's ugh, it's, it's just, just where a struggle
1: i think that we've gone we we have this lens we kind of have this us lens where production is declining in the us we have these regulatory burdens we certainly have a, a president who's telling us that we we will be cutting 50 to 52 percent i love that there's that two percent potentially 50 to 52 percent of emissions by 2030 you know or, or I think we've we've pledged this um, along with Xi Jinping who said that he's going to also work to cut emissions, which is ridiculous. Um, but that's what we're saying. And so it means that we have to reduce this demand. And I think that this, that context and that lens is, is help creating this, you know, push of investment on the renewable side, getting folks excited about that. And it's clouding people's judgment and understanding of how crude oil dynamics are going to work around the world and get natural gas for that matter. Because I think what's going to happen, truthfully, I really think that, you know, People are going to try to push with all the renewables in the short term, realize that there's massive bottlenecks. Even if they wanted every solar panel they could from China, there's going to be bottlenecks with it. Prices are going to go up. And then these countries that can't afford it, they can't afford to change everything. They are going to have to use natural gas and it is going to help them reduce their emissions. And what's going to happen is that if. That's correct. And prices you know, fall. The energy transition community thinks price is going to fall, but obviously prices aren't falling. So near-term forecast for oil right now, what ha- is happening with oil is completely counter to what everybody is, has said to date on what oil demand is going to do. So somewhere between now and very quickly from now, demand has to fall off a cliff. Um, and we've just told you that gas car, used car sales are going through the roof. Nobody wants to get on public transit. So like... I don't understand there's got to be like a breaking point right and so even if prices were to slide you know say they let's just go through a scenario opec produces more right saudi produces a little bit more and and it's six whatever let's just say somehow it craters to 40. oh my that's like india's greatest gift it's it's everybody's just gonna do it. and the and the countries my point is the countries themselves. They do have cheaper production. It's not at, it's not expensive for Saudi Arabia to produce oil. It is not expensive for Russia to produce oil. You know, they will produce it at a cheap price and they will sell it and they will survive through this. When people talk about the energy transition and they say, hey, we have to do it. You know, we haven't done it and it's really hard. Guess what? This is part of the energy transition. These scenarios of, of these countries that produce it and are going to continue to and they're going to survive through it. It's part of it. And it means that emissions probably will not go down in those places.
0: Final. I think that's a good natural stopping point. We've now talked for two hours straight. This is the end of episode 14. If you missed episode 13, which is the first part of this podcast, go back and listen to that. And then part two will make a lot more sense. Anyway, we're going to wrap it up there. I am the co-host, Ethan Bellamy. Thanks for joining us. Tricia Curtis.
1: I'm your host, is- Tricia Curtis, CEO of Petroids. And I, I just would like to add. She yeah, I always love- has to have the last word. Well, I would love... Um, we want reviews. So I would really like reviews on on iTunes or no, whatever so you it is.
0: want good reviews. Oh, so good it's me. <laughs> yeah, but if you're
1: going if you're going to give one star, at least tell me what sucks about it, you know? So that's fine. I'm, a, I'm game for constructive criticism, but reviews are great. Chuck Yates always wants to down downloads to be nice. We did do, and Ethan wasn't a part of it, so I'm sad about that, but the, the interview with Hylian with with Lewis Baltimore is crushing it um, on YouTube. All I care about that is that it beats out um, Colin and Roberts on with their, the thing, the Diamondback CFO. That's all I care about is, mm. is beating them on that. So, um, but we're looking- Not for,
0: that we don't like Diamondback. Just no, so I, I love, be clear love about Diamondback. That.
1: I just want to beat Colin and Roberts. So um, <laughs> competitive in that space. So anyways, uh, thank you. So so much for listening really appreciate it and yes uh would love downloads and reviews so and tell your friends and family
0: Buona notte.